From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Mitch Pacwa. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Good afternoon. This is another episode of Aqua Unleashed. <laughs> Jack's not here. I have no idea where he is. And they let me into this room relatively unleashed. So if you want to call in with your questions, um, it'd be great to have them. Until that point, let's begin with some of the emails. Patricia, can you help me understand the rapture? How can Protestants believe in this? Um, I'm, I certainly do um, disagree with that as a good explanation of the scriptural passages. Um, the word rapture is not found in the Bible, <laughs> like a lot of other words. And the concept of the rapture where people who are believers will be taken up and, uh, and away to be with Jesus, and other people will be left here on earth. And it, I think it confuses passages that are mixed together. Uh, when our Lord described uh, the end of the world, he also described the attack on Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. Uh, in August of 70, the temple was destroyed and then the rest of the city was taken uh, in September of 70. And that is mixed there with passages about the end of the world. And because they are in close proximity, the passage that it where it says uh, one will be taken another left behind is in reference to those who are in Jerusalem during the siege and during the the Roman well, well Jesus didn't say it was the Romans but it was in historically uh, 40 years after his prediction uh, it was the Romans who took the city and uh, you know, some people survived, some didn't. Christians remembered this prophecy, and they didn't look to be taken up into the air, but they escaped Jerusalem and went across to the east side of the Jordan River, and they stayed in a city called Pella. You can still see the ruins of the old Christian church that are there. Uh, that was destroyed by the Muslim invasion in uh, 636. Great battle there. But that's that's where that comes from. It's a, the, the concept was pretty well invented in the 1850s A.D. Uh, nobody else talked about it before then. So that, that's put, they're putting together some passages. And I think sometimes, you know, by putting things together that don't belong together, make a little confusion. Sam asks, what is the significance of Peter, James, and John? Were they more important or blessed than the rest of the apostles? 
anyone who is a teacher, especially in the teaching style, which, by the way, is going to be the subject of tonight's program on EWTN Live. Uh, that'll be 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be talking with Gary Machute about his new book. And one of the things that's very important about his book, he describes how rabbis developed circles of disciples. And the Talmidim, that's, that's what a Talmid is. A Talmidim is a, a Talmid is a student. And they would, whenever you teach, and I, I certainly did this, you, you find that some students are, A, more interested in what you say than other students are, B, some are more interested and more adept at understanding what you're saying, and thirdly, some are more interested, more adept, and more interested in leading others in understanding what you say. So, the, you know, in a regular classroom, there might be one or other student who is better at tutoring the other students. For instance, nobody ever came to me for math homework because I was not very good at math, but there were other areas where people would, you know, ask me to help them with their homework uh, and discuss things with me. Um, that's, you know, that, that's to be expected. Anybody who teaches knows that. Uh, and that's the way I would see it, that these were the three that our Lord identified as the most adept, the most, not necessarily the smartest. That's another thing, too. Just because you are adept at a certain topic doesn't mean that you're necessarily the smartest. Any number of times I knew students who were more willing to study than the ones who were really smart. And, uh, for instance, my two best Hebrew students were from East Asia. They, they, what was their advantage? They knew that they knew nothing about Hebrew because that was not part of their culture at all. Not even slang words like we might get in Eng in English, and uh, uh, like we'll say Mazel Tov to somebody, even if we're not Jewish, um, which means good luck. Um, but you know they had nothing, so they worked extra hard. Well, one of a couple of my worst students were Jewish students who had lived in Israel and thought they knew it, and they they really did know some Hebrew. They could converse a bit. But they didn't know the grammar, and they didn't try as hard, and they didn't do as well as the two East Asians. It's that kind of thing. And so I took them under my wing and gave them advanced courses. I tutored the two of them because they were planning not only on uh, doing well for their own interests, but the both of them wanted to go to graduate school, which they did. So... It's, it's that kind of thing going on, and not too much other than that. 
And then Marcus in Malta asks, why is the head of the society Jesus called the Black Pope? As for the Synod of Synodality, is it really Vatican III? First, uh, the Synod of Synodality is not Vatican III. It is not a general council. It is a synod. Um, at a general council, all the bishops can come. Um, at the synod, there are just a few representatives selected to discuss certain, certain issues. So it doesn't have the authority of a general council. It is not uh, Vatican III. And <clears throat> if there is another council um, in our lifetime, uh, for me that's can be shorter distance, but if there is another one, um, and if it is at the Vatican uh, uh, for to be held there, then it will be you know, de- uh, called as a general council, uh, and it will have another level of authority. Um, but the head of the Society of Jesus is called the Black Pope as a nickname mostly given by non-Catholics. Um, because the, the Jesuits have, are such a large order and have had a lot of influence in the church. That's why they do that. And then here's a, a very important one uh, from Gina. My godchild was given ashes of her cousin, who's my nephew, in a pendant necklace. She doesn't know what to do with them and is seeking Catholic guidance, looking forward to the proper way to handle this. I would find a uh, consecrated place, perhaps if you talk to a parish priest where they have a columbarium, for instance, at our parish uh, here, St. Elias in Birmingham, we have a columbarium. A number of parishes have columbaria where ashes are kept. Perhaps uh, talking to a local pastor, she will uh, have um, permission to maybe put it there someplace, maybe a proper place. It sounds like she doesn't want to walk around with her cousin's ashes. You know, this is a a kind of sentiment, but our ashes, if you are cremated, uh, our ashes are to be kept in sacred ground or a sacred place like the Columbarium. All right, we'll take a break. And if you want to call in, there's... so there's one call line open. It's 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. See you in a minute. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. All right, we are ready with the phones to go to Rosemary in the great state of New Jersey. Rosemary, what can we do for you? Are you talking to me? Well, if you're on the line, I am. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, heard somebody, I heard somebody just the other night speak about how we do not need the devil, devil to tempt us. But that's not necessary. And I went, huh? I don't know that in Scripture. 
Yeah, no, I don't know that either. You know, I I myself would say, for the most part, most of my temptations come from me. But that does not mean that the devil doesn't tempt me or other people. I think most of the time uh, we have to be careful about blaming the devil for absolutely everything. Sometimes, you know, I've built up bad habits and the temptations to do bad things come from the bad habits I developed. Um, that's, That's something that's on me. But in no way does that mean that the devil says, okay, I, he, I'm done with him. No, he can still, he can and most likely will still tempt us. So I don't know why somebody would say they don't need the devil to tempt them. Um, again, most of the time, temptations come from ourselves or from our society. See, this is one of the things to keep in mind. The church recognizes uh, four sources uh, of spiritual influence. One is from ourselves, you know, given our fallen human nature. And that's where I, I suspect the majority of temptations for most people come from. Secondly, the, our society, what in theology we usually call the world, uh, by the world they don't just mean the physical universe the, or physical planet, they mean the uh, uh, the culture. And, you know, if you take a look at a lot of commercials, uh, right now as we get closer to Halloween, the world is going to try to tempt people to a number of things and will uh, in a number of the commercials associated with St. Valentine's Day, they will try to appeal to lust to tempt people to buy some clothes uh, or lack thereof uh, and, and other things. Um, so the world is a second source. The uh, third source is the devil. This is very much part of our teaching. He does try to tempt us. And then the fourth source of spiritual influence is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does try to work within us to counter uh, the attack, the attacks and temptations of the devil, as well as our society and of ourselves. So three of them are bad influences, uh, and the Holy Spirit is the good influence. And so we want to learn to be able to recognize his allurement to us rather than that of ourselves, the world, or the devil. Does that help, Marie? Rosemary? It does to a point. Yeah, what point does it not help? Then he said, uh, Lucifer, when he was in heaven, he was tempted, and the devil, he he wouldn't become the devil. So how did that happen? Wait, okay, so here, take a look at what I just said. The first and most common source of temptation is what? The world. Well, uh, well, ourselves. Ourselves. Yeah, ourselves. Because even when no, even when we don't have any radio or television or any other way for all by ourselves, we can still have temptations on our own, right? Yes. Yeah. And 
that the devil didn't need anyone to tempt him. His temptation came from within himself. This but is how some, did that happen? Here's, here's the way that uh, it is most generally understood that he experienced a sin of pride as one of the great angels. He was tempted to be prideful, especially over knowing that the second person of the Blessed Trinity would lower himself to become man and in becoming man redeem sinful human beings. And in his pride, he thought himself above that and above God, that God would lower himself to the human level, the devil apparently thought that that was too far below God or himself. And that sin of pride, which is not a sin of the flesh, but it's an, indivi- it's an intellectual sin. This is a sin of the mind. And he gives way to his thoughts and thinks that God is wrong in being humble, and that uh, in that sin of pride, he goes ahead and uh, separates himself from God. So that's how he could do it without any, anybody tempting him. It's from himself, and it's uh, before there's any other creature, but he's, his own mind is able to do that. Okay? All right. Thank you for calling in. Uh, let's go to Laura in Fort Worth in the Republic of Texas. Laura, what can we do for you? Okay. So I'll see if I can do this better than I did with the call screener. Okay. My, <laughs> my sister and I were talking yesterday about sin and trying to, I was trying to describe works. Okay. And, and how they and how they fit in. She, because of that, she has left the Catholic faith at this point uh-huh. and is practicing a different faith, and she uh-huh. is definitely Bible alone. Okay. So she went, and we were di- so discussing sin and how that plays uh, into our salvation. She said, she gave me Romans 7, for mm-hmm. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Mm-hmm. But then, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For mm-hmm. apart from law, sin is dead. Okay, so she stopped there, and she discussed about by having the Holy Spirit, we have been given a new heart. And then she says, but we don't have to focus on the Ten Commandments. And I'm having a real hard time explaining my, our faith. Sure. And I was wondering if you could give me a helping hand with that. Here's one thing I'm going to, uh, because this, uh, she's engaging in, you know, a, a couple of issues, um, the, a, a number of issues that she has to 
cope with. And I'm, for that reason, I'm going to recommend that you take a look and maybe take give her a copy and maybe do a Bible study together. I did a Bible, I wrote a Bible study called Saved, a Bible study for Catholics on what, okay. you know, trying to deal with this, you know, the, uh, its entirety. Uh, you, you have to keep in mind that while the law is something that made Paul aware of his own sin, and in some ways it stirred that in him, notice that in that same passage, he uh, says, um, you know, that uh, for sin finding an opportunity in the commandment deceived me and it killed me. But does that mean that the law is bad? By did, did, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good. So he's recognizing in that very passage that the law is good, is he not? That was my understanding. Well, that's because that's what he says. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And so if he says that, the law is good, but that's something that is, uh, so again, in verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just, and good. So how does that say that the commandment is irrelevant? No, it does not. It does not. It just means that there is uh, uh, something of sin that is a power working within me. He says, we know the law is spiritual, but I am cardinal, carnal, excuse me. I am carnal, sold under sin. And I do not understand my own actions. And this is actually one of my favorite passages. This was a, a source of real change for me and, and uh, in a retreat that I made back about 1973 or 72. Um, when I was a, obviously a much younger man, that's over 50 years ago. Uh, <laughs> hey, oh, there you go. Easy laugh at me just because I'm old. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not defensive. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, he, then you have to take a look and see, in the, uh, for instance, in Mark chapter 10, why does Jesus say, when the man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, you know the commandments. You shall uh, you know, love your, uh, honor your mother and your father, shall not kill, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, uh, shall not commit adultery, shall not covet. He says those, co- so he says you do those commandments to inherit eternal life. Is she saying Jesus is wrong? I hope like not. I hope not. Me too. So, what I would do is get a hold of that book, and you know uh, you can see we, that's just a start. I have only a minute to go here. I got to get. Uh, you have a hard break coming, but um, 
take a look at that and see how she has to have a balance of the whole of Scripture and not just part of it. Plus, just a reminder, nowhere in the Bible does it say you use the Bible alone. That's not there. Instead, use the Bible and tradition. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. We'll be back in just a few, uh, a couple minutes, so please stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. All right, you got those numbers. We have a couple lines now open as we just finished up talking to a couple nice folks. Uh, 833-288-3986. But uh, while you're calling in, we'll go to Christine, who is in Sweet Home, Chicago. Christine, what can we do for you? Hi. You know, I was reading in the book of Deuteronomy how... Uh, how they, if a person could keep a vow that they uh, had to offer a lot of offerings, especially mm-hmm. if it was a young woman, if the father said you can't do that. What about in the New Testament? If somebody takes, since we're New, New Testament people, what if, say, you make a vow, but you are unable to keep that vow you know, you didn't know that something would happen. Maybe you can't keep it. Mm-hmm. Then do you, did they have, in the early church days, did they have to do the same thing with no. the peace? Mm-hmm. No, they, they uh, no longer uh, needed to do that. Now, you do see that in Acts of the Apostles, St. Paul had been accused of being uh, a very improper Jew. And he was being persecuted. And as a result, many in the church were also suffering persecution. So in order to show that he was not uh, being bad in practicing his Judaism, he made a vow that in uh, a Nazarite vow, that at the end of the time of the vow, he would offer a sacrifice. And that's something that he did. But for breaking vows, you know, that you could not keep, we don't see any of that in the early church. uh, And uh, and in fact, you know, the, the temple where sacrifices were offered, that temple only lasted another 40 years after Christ's death and resurrection. And so the, the early church and, and the Jewish community could not offer those sacrifices anymore. Christians, uh, you know, don't uh, uh, offer sacrifices for a vow that you could not keep. Uh, sometimes, it depends on the kind of vow it is. If 
you know, the, the church is very clear. You are not obligated to do what you cannot do. So, for instance, uh, somebody made a vow to donate uh, a, a, a certain amount of money, say $1,000, to their parish. And before they could bring it in, they went bankrupt and they lost everything they had. Well, at that point, they would not be obligated to fulfill that vow, not because of bad will, but they simply cannot. Things in the economy and business, other things could happen that you cannot possibly do that. So you, uh, you do not have to do that. And we don't look at such vows as uh, most uh, simple vows that people make as having the kind of legal binding that say you would have if somebody was a nun or a brother or a priest and they wanted to get out of their vowed way of life for some reason or other. Then you don't offer a sacrifice, you still don't, but if you are convinced that this is not what God wants you to do, then you do need to go through a process of having that vow undone. But uh, it's, it's, you know, for priests, it's laicization, and for religious, it's, you know, uh, also uh, a process to get out of their vows. But it's not a sacrifice. We don't, we don't do that ever. Does that help? Well, what about, like, say, if a person makes a vow of virginity, then they, they feel they can't ca- uh, practice this anymore, and they'll... And they'll uh, mm-hmm. Would I, they, uh, was it a private vow kind of situation? Yeah. Okay, here's what I would do. In that case, I would go to one's confessor or pastor and explain the situation and uh, ask and talk to them about, uh, I suspect that there are no uh, specific things uh, in terms of canon law, and maybe they would be able to, because the there's only one sacrifice that we offer, and that is the sacrifice of the Mass. Maybe that would be a possibility at uh you know uh, of your uh, a priest formally releasing somebody from that vow in the confessional or uh at uh, a little service outside of the confessional or inside or outside mass talk to the uh, a pastor or confessor about that that would be my suggestion for that kind of private vow okay the ministry said that the early church just let it go, Bell, because we don't do the sacrificial... Uh, right. The, uh, no, no animal sacrifices are part of what we do at all. All right. All right, Christine. I'm going to go over to Chris in Ohio. Um, what can we do for you today, Chris? How are you doing, Father? And Fine. thank you for your years of spiritual advice, 
helped me tremendously and in miraculous ways. Oh, my pleasure uh, to do my, what I can. My question is this. I listen to you all the time. And last week, a lady called, mm-hmm. said her son had died tragically. Yeah, I and remember she asked, that. How would she see him again and mm-hmm. in what form? And, and if I remember it, your reply was, we don't know what form it will be. We will be in spirit. But in the Apostles' Creed, we read, uh, we profess that we're going to be resurrected, body and soul. And I, and I realized, like uh, Christ, when he was resurrected, the Apostles on the road, road to Emmaus did not recognize the new glorified body. Right. So it was changed somewhat. But we, we will be more than spirit in heaven, or no? Um, here's one of the things that um, uh, I would uh, do, uh, keep in mind, uh, a balance here. At the end of time is the resurrection of the dead. When we die, we are not raised up from the dead. You know, we're still a pure spirit. That's why I was saying I don't know what form uh, because at the, the time of death, we are still pure spirit. And yet, I'm, you know, from the way that St. John describes heaven, that mm-hmm. he, there are pure spirits who recognize each other. How exactly oh. they do that is something that, not having been to heaven, uh, I cannot yeah. describe with any kind of accuracy. But I can point out that throughout the book of Revelation, there is recognition among the pure spirits there, including of the different angels being recognizable from the other angels, yet alone the people who are the the, the saved uh, Christians who are up there. So there will be recognition even before the resurrection. In the resurrection, of course, our bodies will be raised up. Uh, but, you know, in heaven, uh, it'll be a matter of pure spirit. So that that's all that I was talking about. Does that help? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that helps. And and, and then in Scripture where it says that the, the, the graves of the dead will be opened and they will rise out of their, their graves mm-hmm. before those who are left behind. So Christ is going to open these graves and, yes. and these bodies are going to come out. Right, right. And then, of course, it, because this is one of the great things about our faith— it's a recognition that the integrity of a human person includes their bodiliness. We are not angels. My mother certainly never thought so. And so, uh, but we are not angels. We are not pure spirit by nature. We are spirit and body. And so the resurrection of the dead that reunites spirit and body is where we are fully human. And fully alive. Uh, but until that time, we'll be in heaven with Christ. St. Paul says that in Philippians chapter 1, that, uh, you know, it'd be better to be with Christ uh, by dying uh, than to be on earth. But he wants to serve Christ any way he wants. So, but uh, how exactly we recognize pure other pure spirits when we are pure spirit, that's... I have to become a pure spirit before I can tell you much about it. All right, let us now go to Debbie in Vero Beach. Hi, Father Mitch. Really enjoy listening to you. Well, and, thank you. Um, 
one of my favorite people to listen to. Um, question I have is, down in Florida where we are right now, there are a lot of our friends who are going through a lot of illness. Sure. And I was looking at the anointing of the sick, but then I also found on the Catholic bishop's website the blessings for Order of the Sick. And as I was reading through it, I found something that I didn't know. There's a number It says, The present order may be used by a priest or a deacon. It may also be used by a lay person who follows the rites and prayers designated for lay minister. Mm-hmm. And then it keeps going from there. And it says what to do and how to do it. And I said, oh, I didn't know we had a right, you know, as a lay minister. Do we have to have permission from the priest? Or can we just dutifully go through everything that is outlined to give this blessing? Again, it's not the sacrament, but right. it's a blessing. And a lot of times, good friends you know, would appreciate that. And it kind of goes back to, you know, trying to um, help each other the way the early Christians did. And then the last part of my question is, I have some really close friends who are either falling away Catholic or not Catholic, but we're really, really close. And I just wanted to know that if if this is legal to do, could I offer it to them? And if they said, yes, I would love it, would I be allowed to do it? Well, if it's something that you, that, you know, the USCCB has said that uh, uh, an extraordinary minister of the Eucharist is allowed to do, you can. If it's something limited to, restricted to a priest or a deacon, No. But if it's something that the USCCB guidelines, uh, I, I'm not quite as familiar with those. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> there's asking Jesuits about liturgical questions sometimes is itself questionable. Uh, there's an old saying in the church: "I'm as confused as a Jesuit in Holy Week." Uh, <laughs> We're not known to be the best liturgist, uh, though we have a number of very fine liturgists, but that was the uh, an old saying. Uh, but if the USCCB guidelines gives permission to do that, you're certainly free to do so. So follow, you know, take a look at those guidelines and um, adhere, you know, carefully to them. But other than that, uh, I don't see uh, when it says that a, uh, an extraordinary minister of the Eucharist can do that, then you can do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, because the words they use are layperson. Yeah. So that's not even right. Right. No, they. Well, they well yeah, that's that's pretty clear. So you can do that if that's if that's in the text. Okay. I always uh, I use as my guideline in the liturgy, do what it says in the red print and read what it says in black print. So uh, because a tradition going all the way back to the early Bronze Age in Egypt, 
and this is 5,000 years ago, they would give liturgical instructions in red ink, but the text of the, their liturgy in black ink. That's why we call the liturgy actions rubrics. That's exactly where that comes from, from the word for red ink. So feel free. All right. Thank you for calling in with that. Let's now go to Israel in Fort Worth, Texas. Israel, what can we do for you? Hello, Father. Um, I'm Israel. Um, I'm a convert to Catholicism from Judaism. And I'm looking over Daniel 325 in the King James or in the Dewey range, Daniel 392, where Nebuchadnezzar addresses the fourth person as the Son of God. I'm yes. looking at the Aramaic, and he says, levar elahim, which for me clearly says Son of God. I'm looking also at the Greek, God is singular. So where are these new Catholic translations or Protestant translations? Why are they still translating it Son of the Gods, plural? Where for me, it's such a Christology as a convert. Right. It's an explicit view of uh, a Gentile recognizing the Son of God. Yeah, let me see... Uh, if there's something in toys. Yeah, and, um, you know, I'm looking at the Greek text, and it says, Theou, uh, singular, Angelus Theou. Um, yes, it's a singular as well. In one, in one text, it says, Huyo Theou, and another one, Angelus Theou, but either case, Theu is singular, I think that they are mistranslating. That's what I would say. And I would, um, you know, what what I would do with that, uh, you know, I appreciate your scholarship on that. Atayele tov Yerushalayim. But what I would do is send a note to the USCCB. And, yes, because I think it's very uh, interesting. Cause, cause, cause even the, the, the translators need to know that. But they, but they ought to, Father. There's a way I know the it. I know it. Now, here's, I, I do know this. One of my good friends is a superb Greek scholar. He, he wrote the, uh, a standard Greek grammar. And he translated a couple of the New Testament books. And when they had an editor go over his translation and change things, he said, he had to say to them, get my name off of that. Yeah, I, I don't want anything, don't let my name be associated with it. He was just furious. Um, so it could well have been one of the editors. I pointed some of these things out to one of the cardinals uh, on that. And they went ahead and they made some of the changes I suggested. They were translating Dikaiosune uh, as holiness, and it's not. It's translating Tzedakah uh, from the Old Testament, which means righteousness or justice. And they mistranslated it. I, I had to sometimes be emphatic, but it's important to be emphatic on this stuff. And this is whenever people translate, you've got to call them to task. The people who know better, 
need to do that. So that's I, I'm very serious, Israel. Try to contact folks at the USCCB uh, Bible Translation Committee. Go on their website and say you found this discrepancy, and I'll I'll sort of poke around and see what I can uh, try to instigate as well. Sound like a deal? Sounds like a deal because if you if you look at especially the Aramaic in Daniel, yeah. You have using the word form, which is dame. So I know this cannot be an angel because you have the word dam, yep. even though it's Aramaic, you have blood embedded, and exactly. angels doesn't have blood. Exactly. That's exactly right. Okay. So, yeah, that's something I would hold on to. And by the way, while we're talking to Israel about this, let me also go back to a call from two weeks ago. I was ready last week, and um, I... I just got caught up, uh, as I almost did today, until Israel uh, called in and brought uh, this issue up. Somebody had said that a friend of hers told her that the Greek word agapao, meaning love, uh, to to love, agapan, uh, simply means to make a choice. Uh, There is one place uh, in ancient Greek literature where that is true. In uh, Dio Chrysostom, uh, in his Orationes, which was written in right around the year 100 or so, a little bit after 100, um, he died in 140, uh, he used it to refer to making a choice. Um, but for the most part, Uh, As I did say in that program, the word agapao is not really a big issue in ancient Greek literature. It becomes a bigger issue in the Greek translation of the Bible made by uh, Jewish people in Alexandria, Egypt. They use it to translate ahava, and secondly, it's, it's used a lot in the New Testament. That's what gets its more specific meaning. Um, in the, uh, uh, you, you do see Plotinus in the uh, secular literature of the third century trying to distinguish that agapao means to love in a condescending way while erao or eron to, to you know, be passionate is how you love somebody above you, um, and there, and there, are no Greek discussions on what agapao means. They, they just didn't do that. They they weren't that interested in it. Usually, they use it as a synonym for friendship and for eros and things. They don't use it much. They don't use the noun and they don't use the verb very often. Uh, so um, it, it really be, got its specific meaning about God's divine love for us uh, a, a, in the New Testament. So that's just addressing that. Let us now go over to Eddie who is calling from Jackson, Tennessee. What can we do for you? Yes, good afternoon, Father. Uh, I'm a convert to Catholicism as well, and uh, this session has helped me a lot. had a question regarding, um, you had a Professor Paul uh, Kengo on um, 
Yes. A couple of weeks ago. Yes. And he discussed a very interesting book. I have the, the book well written. I felt like the, um, one particular subject maybe was not touched on mm-hmm. as much, and that's the role of uh, uh, Pope Nick Nicholas V, the Purple Bull from 1455. Right. Which was similarly said to, to be the basis for authorizing enslavement in Western Sahara. What were your mm-hmm. thoughts about that? Yes. And, uh, as a matter of fact, he and I were going to, we had, before the show, we had said we we're going to talk about that, and we got carried away, as I oftentimes do. Here's Pope Nicholas V told the Portuguese that when they attack northwestern Africa, that they ought to do so to reclaim it for the Christians, because it had been a Christian area, but had been taken over by uh, uh, Muslim armies sometime before, and he saw this as part of the Reconquista that had gone on in Spain. He said, and you'll be able to get slaves. This was not the kind of slavery that was used in the slave trade. It was the slavery typical of all sides in seagoing warfare. The people you know, in, throughout the Mediterranean did not depend on sails for their uh, ships. They depended on oars. And they were enslaving. When they captured people, they would capture their enemies and make them galley slaves. That's what he was talking about in that context. It was just a standard part of warfare. And uh, you could, as a matter of fact, buy and, you know, the liberty of the galley slaves, uh, etc. But it was about if you go to war, you capture the enemy, you can force them to be galley slaves, and both sides did it. So that was a different thing than sending them to plantations and such. That was not what he was recommending, just the warfare. All right. I'm afraid I got to go. Lord bless you all and keep you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God will talk to you next week.